0: This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm your host Dr. Jonathan Abel and I am here today with Professor Dr. John Kuhn.
1: How are you doing John? It's good to be here.
0: Dr. Kuhn is our naval expert at the Department of Military History faculty and today we are going to talk about an often overlooked but very important part of American military history and that's the Washington Naval Treaty in the 1920s. Um, So why don't you start us off, Dr. Kuhn, kind of introduce us to what this treaty is. When is it happening, and and what is it?
1: Uh, Okay, so the Washington Naval Treaty, as the name indicates, was uh, a, a treaty that was signed after the Washington Naval Conference, and it was the Washington Naval Conference. Sometimes it's called the Conference for the Limitation of Armaments held at Washington. Um, This conference was the idea of the new administration in the United States, the Harding administration, and this administration had decided to sort of make a name for itself as a proponent for peace. Um, And uh, the Secretary of State for President Harding was the guy who had actually run against Woodrow Wilson on a pro-war platform. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes, the Secretary of State of the United States. He's later becomes Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, an immensely talented individual um, who operated in all, all the branches, sort of, of the federal government. Um, and now Charles Evans Hughes' background was not military. He was, he was a, a lawyer and a banker, I think. Um, uh, but he was one of this group of guys that hung out with Teddy Roosevelt. And so he was very influenced by the ideas of Theodore Roosevelt. Well, one of the things was that there was an arms race going on after World War and So everybody was like, why are we in a naval arms race with Great Britain and Japan when we were all allies in World War One?" At the same time, the United States and Japan had very, very poor relations because of segregationist legislation that were being passed on the west coast of the United States segregating Asian school children from white school children. And so Japan had taken offense at that. So there was a there was a war scare so this conference was meant to sort of deal with a number of issues it was sort of a conference to kind of finish the unfinished business at versailles and so all the major powers are invited to the conference uh, including the five major naval powers france italy the united states great britain and japan not invited to the conference were germany which had been taken care of at versailles and then the pariah state of the Soviet Union, which nobody was inviting to anything at that time. So the five major naval powers are there. And the agenda for the conference was, was to get a treaty of limitations on armaments to stop the naval arms race. And Hughes, the way that Hughes got everybody to agree to do this was he offered to scrap almost a million tons of of American battleships that were either built or or on the ways to be built um, in order to get the other nations to agree to also limit their navies. The final result was fascinating, and he made all of these proposals on the first day of the conference, which nobody expected, which was basically that there was going to be a naval ratio system for capital ships, that is battleships and battlecruisers, that would be 5-5. 3, 1.75, 1.75. So the United States and Great Britain were going to allowed to have the same number of battleships as each other, or the same tonnage. Um, and that was going to be about 540,000 tons of battleships, about 20 battleships. Um, the Japanese were going to be able to have three-fifths of that Um, and then the French and the Italians were gonna be able to have half of what the Japanese had, which was really a radical proposal. The the idea that the Japanese could have a superior fleet to either the French or the Italians was was shocking to the French and Italian delegations. So that was the 5-5-3 ratio. Um, And the fact that the Japanese agreed to an inferior position was considered a great coup, even though the United States scrapped far more battleships than the Japanese had to. And, and and the United States uh, scrapped more than the British had to. The British and the Japanese had to scrap down, but not much. The other amazing thing was complete moratorium on building battleships. So these nations are all agreed for 10 years, nobody would build a new battleship, which was just unprecedented. Um, and then they all agreed that nobody would build anything other than... Uh, uh, with one exception, the aircraft carrier, anything larger than 10,000 tons, which essentially limited all the navies of the world to building uh, cruisers and anything smaller than a cruiser. Um, The final uh, form of the treaty also was this idea that the nations could build aircraft carriers. They set the limit at what the British had in aircraft carriers, uh, which came to about 125,000 tons of aircraft carrier shipping. And so the upper limit for the size of an aircraft carrier was determined to be 27,000 tons. And they used the same ratio, 553. Five, so the Americans could have 125,000 tons, the British could have 125,000 tons, and the Japanese could have like 90,000 tons. And so that was the ratio for the Japanese, the Americans, and the British. The French and the Italians uh, uh, were uh, also included in those ratios, but they ended up not building any aircraft carriers at all. Uh, there wasn't a holiday on building aircraft carriers, but there was a tonnage limit. And once you got to that limit, you had to decommission an aircraft carrier before you could build a new one. The one big agreement that, uh, that the Americans insisted on and that the Japanese insisted on was that some of the battleships that they were going to decommission could be converted to aircraft carriers. And so the Japanese and the United States both were allowed to convert two of their battleships or battle cruisers. in the case of the United States, Two aircraft carriers. Those aircraft carriers were the only aircraft carriers in the world that were allowed to exceed the 27,000 ton limit. The American carriers uh, came in at almost 40,000 tons. So they were going to be the largest and fastest warships in the world when they were finished. The Japanese carriers were uh, a little smaller, but not much smaller. The British already had all the aircraft carriers they needed, and they decided not to build any new ones, and they adopted what's called the wait-and-see policy. So that's the treaty, stopped the naval arms race, diffused a naval war scare of the United States and Japan, and it essentially ended at a single stroke, uh, the naval arms race, and saved all these nations billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars, pounds, and yen. Okay, so to, to understand
0: where this conference and treaty come from, I want to take us back a couple decades. Um, we, don't, we don't normally think a lot about navies in American military history, particularly outside of war context, right? Um, but that's not the case in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So if we go back to maybe the 1890s, the, ni- the decade of the 1900s, um, explain what, what we mean by popular navalism and kind of the, the, the world of Alfred Thayer Mahan and Teddy Roosevelt.
1: Yeah, it, navalism isn't a new concept. Uh, you know, navalism is, is, is simply this idea that, that a nation is going to invest considerable resources in a large navy. Um, and, and so it had existed prior, but nobody ever called it that. Um, and, 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 and the idea of of this being an option uh, kind of ends in 1815 with the, with the defeat of the, of the French in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, the focus on navies kind of goes away because we get this global Pax Britannica. And the Royal Navy, the only country that's really a navalist power in this period to any degree, although the French kind of pretend to be one. Uh, will be will be the 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 Royal Navy and and, and the Empire and I'm not going to call it the nation right? the Empire of Great Britain, and Britain needs a navy because she has an Empire, and of course she has an Empire because she had a navy. So it's sort of this circular logic right. that exists. And, and and people who criticize navalism have always kind of pointed that out that that you know well you don't need a navy if you don't have an Empire you know. So if you don't have an empire, you know, why do you need a navy? And so, and that was always kind of the case in the United States. But the popular imagination is captured by the idea of sea power at the end of the Pax Britannica. And so my explanation for the popularity of navalism has to do with how the popular imagination is captured by naval power. And a lot of this has to do with the end of what we would call the frontier period in American history. The Americans had kind of run out of frontiers, and so now their frontiers were the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Pacific Ocean, and so the Americans start to think about naval power. Now, they don't go to it immediately, but they're helped along by the fact that there is this group of naval reformers who are arguing that the United States needs a much bigger navy than it has, the United States Navy in, eight, in the 1880s is, is is a third rank, maybe at the bottom of the second rank of naval powers, and they don't even have uh, steel ste- steel steamships uh, until in the in the in the middle of the 1880s when they get the so-called ABCD fleet, and so 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 right around the time that the United States is unified and its new frontiers are now the seas. Um, these officers are creating the Naval War College, and one of them publishes a book that captures the popular imagination. Alfred Thayer Mahan publishes the influence of Sea Power upon History, and instantly overnight, this book sort of launches the era of navalism. Um, it's not the only thing contributing to it. I think technology plays a big role as people realize how important sea power is to the expanding global economy and and empires and colonies more and more people start to see the importance of having a navy particularly right. in it's North. also
0: an age of popular science
1: it's an age of popular science and you know there's nothing more scientific than a modern warship it's got steam propulsion it's a machine and right. you know a wooden sailing ship is a machine but a steamship is a machine of another order. It's a system of machines, and it
0: looks like modernity.
1: It looks like modernity. It absolutely does. I mean, Henry Adams, he writes this wonderful article, uh, chapter in his autobiography uh, about going to one of these scientific fairs and and you know and, and and sleeping you know next to Foucault's pendulum. You know, I mean, it's it's so there's this fascination with science. You've got Jules Verne. You've got H.G. Wells. And, and their books are populated by these modern naval warship machines. So it's not just Mahan, but popular fiction is emphasizing these machines. And so in the same way that the airplane will capture the popular imagination, uh, modern warships and modern weapons of war like torpedoes and submarines and and, and long-range uh, rifled artillery at sea, they're all capturing the public imagination. And so I think this is kind of where it all comes from. Um, at the same time, everybody else is sort of jockeying for position as as sort of the, the end of the Pax Britannica is coming about. And so, you know, the, the book goes over well with European audiences and all of a sudden you've got all these land powers that are, that are fascinated by sea power. Um, And sea power becomes sort of a cottage industry of people writing about naval power and naval history. Naval history becomes real popular. In the American case it's not just the fact that you've got Alfred Thayer Mahan and these naval reformers who are evangelizing sea power or that you've got a similar thing going on in Great Britain with Sir Julian Corbett and Callahan and Jackie Fisher but the president of the United States is a naval historian. He is, he is, a, he is an academic naval historian. He writes a naval history of the War of 1812. And so Theodore Roosevelt will be cheerleader number one for sort of the American brand of navalism. And he's a larger-than-life figure, uh, much larger than life than Mahan. I mean, the Theodore Roosevelt is to Mahan as, 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 as Jack Nicholson you know, is to Red Skelton. I mean, you know, just far more larger than life and entertaining. You know, maybe Red Skelton's not the guy I should use. Maybe I should, should use somebody like, you know, that you've never heard of, some actor that nobody has ever heard of, some character actor. Right. And and that's Theodore Roosevelt. He He's larger than life.
0: So we've got this kind of popular fervor. We've got a changing world, new technology, all of that. How does that then take us into World War One?
1: So... You know, just as we as 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 we as we've seen with with the trajectory towards the Great War in fantesical Europe, and I would call it fantesical Earth, okay, uh, because it is a European Earth up until 1914 for the most part, um, uh, at least in terms of the dominant systems and extraction of wealth around the globe. Uh, are are European and American, but I include the the Americans and the Japanese with the Europeans um, in their methods. The same thing's happening, happening with fleets. So just as we see mass conscript armies controlled by scientific processes and general staffs, we see the same thing happening with navies. And in the United States, there's this thing called Taylorism, which is this management Thing we're gonna we're gonna manage our way to success, manage our way to victory, and so so the so all of the major powers are doing the same thing, and there's this incredible naval arms race that's taking place, and it's really focused on these very very expensive weapons called battleships, um, which have you know if sea power. Manages to capture a popular attention that had never really paid much attention to it, which is Mahan's argument, right? That, you know, nobody's really paid much attention to sea power and its influence on history until me, right? Which is not quite true, but he makes that argument, and it seems to make sense at the time. Um, the, the, The same thing is happening with the battleship. The battleship captures the popular imagination. I mean, people can't build dreadnought battleships quickly enough. Um, They have this sleek design, they're all big gun, they're fast, they're modern, they're deadly, they're lethal. Battleships in 1913 are like ballistic missiles today, nuclear ballistic missiles. So you have a battleship arsenal, it's like a nuclear arsenal today. He who has a battleship arsenal can deter his enemies. And achieve goals without actually fighting in some senses and so everybody is building these arsenals of battleships and and so the popular imagination is seized with these things and the impact of World War One is is this incredible naval arms race that leads up to the war. Now the fascinating thing is Britain wins that race before the war starts. Germany clearly loses the race but Britain actually wins that arms race. Uh, before, and Germany kind of knows that before the war starts. However, in the, in the popular imagination, this naval arms race is one of the causal factors of World War I because it is this naval arms race between Great Britain and the Empire of Germany that breaks down the, the generations-old close relationship between the royal houses of Great Britain and Prussia and when that relationship is broken if you want to look why it's broken all you have to do is look at the dreadnought battleship and that kind of explains okay now we know why the relationship is broken and and so so people conflate the breaking of the british german relationship for maintaining the balance of power in europe they don't blame the statesmen so much who's who they should really blame uh, particularly the german statesman Particularly the German naval statesman uh, Tirpitz, they don't and Kaiser Wilhelm. They don't blame them. They blame the battleship. The battleship is to blame. It's the naval. It's navalism that's the cause of World War One, or one of the contributing factors. It's not the only cause, but it is a major factor. And so that helps kind of explain why people react the way they do after World War One is over.
0: So we we've talked a lot about kind of the big ticket, flashy kind of navalism, the the big gun dreadnought. And yet this also, World War I, will be a war fought under the sea. So how do submarines and maybe some of the smaller new types of ships like torpedo boats, how does that fit in with this idea of popular navalism that only wants the biggest and the flashiest?
1: Yeah, Mahan actually comes to grips with this earlier than most of his contemporaries. He, He realizes that these big expensive dreadnoughts are... A dead end strategically that that they're going to lead to a, a, a limited ability to respond. If you're going to have, he claims, the dreadnought will unbalance the fleet, and he's absolutely correct. It does unbalance the fleet. When the United States Navy goes to the war, it can't even come up with crews for all of its dreadnoughts, um, and it actually has problems coming up with enough crews for its destroyers. So they've been so busy building hardware that they forget to man the hardware that they built. Um, so, to, to understand sort of the disesteem side, the, the French are sort of the leaders here. They, there's a famous French naval theorist named Castex, and there's this school of thought called the Jeune Ecole. Now, it's not just the French, it's also the Russians. So, in the second rank naval powers who kind of realize they're never going to be able to keep up with Great Britain, but try to do so anyway, they are relying on technology to equal things. And so part of navalism is this fascination with technology and just the amazing uh, development and evolution of technology. I mean, we go from Holland's electric boat, which is what he calls it. It's an electric boat. It's a boat that can go under the water on batteries and then come up and be a motor torpedo boat on the surface. Um, We go from that, which is designed for harbor defense, essentially something that can do the same thing that the Monitor did in Hampton Roads, except for much less cost, um, to open ocean going submarines just 15 years later, okay, which will bring Great Britain to its knees. All right, um, and so so, so, the technology development of the submarine, of the torpedo and of the aircraft um, kind of overtake uh, events. And when we do get into World War I, it's not that the battleships don't prove useful, they do. The fact is they don't, They it turns out that they can't win the war on their own, which everybody always kind of knew because after Trafalgar, Napoleon fights for another 10 years. So the idea that battleships can win a war on their own has kind of already been shown to be a facile idea. But these disesteemed things, you know, they never sort of measure up in all of the different conflicts prior to World War I. Torpedoes, submarines, torpedo boats, and destroyers, they don't really, they don't match a lot of the promise. Uh, we'll, we'll see the Japanese try to do torpedo attacks in the Russo-Japanese War. and And, you know, like three torpedoes out of 80 torpedoes will actually hit the target. Or five torpedoes will hit the target and only one will explode. Um, the same thing with submarines, you know, uh, people are building submarines, and, and it's a lot of hit and miss, you know. It's not till we get to World War I and the urgency of war that these weapons become more practicable. The torpedo, for example, in capability in terms of the size of the explosions, the range it can go, and the speed it can go, will basically have a 3,000% increase from the initial whitehead torpedo until we get to the torpedoes of World War I. That's amazing, a 3,000% increase in, in, in range, in speed, in explosive power. Uh, in, in other words, you know, in orders of magnitude efficacy increase, that's just incredible. And so, so what, what happens is we get into World War I, and it actually turns out that, that the technologists of the Jeune Ecole were probably closer to understanding sort of the nature of modern warfare better. Than the than the battleship guys, all right.
0: Yeah. So so take us through uh, at least briefly what the naval combat of World War One was like. I think we before the war people were imagining it would be basically World War Two, right? Big ships fighting each other, um, but that doesn't really happen in World War One. So so tell us how this kind of all pays off during the war.
1: Well, yeah. So the the British design a fleet or are designing a fleet that can do two things. Uh, The first thing is maintain naval supremacy in the North Sea. Uh, The fleet that they designed to do that is built around two things. A flotilla fleet composed of submarines, light craft like destroyers and cruisers and torpedo boats, and then a main battle fleet composed of uh, battleships and battle cruisers. So, uh, and the whole idea here is that we can Maintain dominance of the North Sea, and that's going to do two things for us in a war with Germany. It's going to prevent the Germans from invading Great Britain as a solution to their problem, which is classic British strategy. Maintain command of the sea so your enemy can't resort to an invasion and then use his big army to dictate terms to you in London. And then the other piece, of course, is to enforce a blockade. Um, Now, where the Germans will get it wrong is they is they don't understand that the British have already abandoned the idea of a close blockade. So they prepare to fight a close-in, littoral war with the British uh, and to whittle the British fleet down with submarines, destroyers, and motor torpedo boats. Uh, the British don't play their game. They basically say, well, we can do an open blockade. Now, a close blockade is what you normally think of with a blockade. You're going to put a bunch of ships outside ports and harbors, and you can control who goes in and who goes out. The British instead understand, they've studied this closely. this This is the work of some recent scholars that's kind of taken a look at this. They understand that the way to blockade an enemy is to work against his financial structure. So the British go, if we declare a blockade, we don't actually have to put the fleet off the enemy's ports. All we have to do is threaten the neutral shipping and say, well, you know, you have to check in with us before you go there and what they find is because Great Britain commands the seas around the North Sea the neutral shipping will automatically defer to the British desires so the British actually are able to achieve the blockade without much fighting.
0: So this almost sounds like a transition point from mercantilism to modern sanctions. Right,
1: so it's more like, so the open blockade that the British are doing is more like modern sanctions. What they're really working on are the insurance companies. Um, and again, the fascinating thing here is they hold all the cards because most of the maritime insurance companies are British. Like Lloyd's, yeah. And so these insurance companies refuse to write insurance policies for shipping that doesn't adhere to the blockade and so now this is gonna punish some neutral nations like the Dutch uh, who it wasn't intended to punish but oh well fortunes of war but absolutely so this is sort of that transition from mercantilism to sort of the global system so so in the one case the the British don't have to waste time uh, and risk their ships as much maintaining this open blockade the only way the Germans can can break this is to essentially challenge British command of the sea um, and, and, and obtain control of the North Sea. And, and they're never able to do it. The one time they really give it a go is at Jutland. And, and Jutland's not about winning a battle in one day, but it's about whittling the British fleet down over time. And the result of Jutland is that the German fleet is whittled down more than the British fleet is. So the British so it's the status quo except the situation is worse for the Germans and better for the British. So Jutland is an operational victory for the British. At the same time the Germans have already discovered the asymmetric approach with submarines. They've they've realized we can conduct a car, we can blockade Britain with submarines and torpedoes. And so a lot of the naval combat that we're going to see in this war other than sort of Jutland uh, is going to be revolved. Now, there, in the first year of the war, there's the classic uh, sort of let's hunt down the commerce raiders that the Germans have running around. And the British have another fleet to do that of light forces of cruisers and battle cruisers. And that fleet is almost perfectly designed to do that. And it does it well. So that by the time we get to 1915, the naval combat is pretty much now focused entirely in the Mediterranean and the North Sea. Um, and much of this is going to be small stuff, what we would call Kleinkrieg, right? Torpedo boats challenging each other at the naval barrage in the English Channel, and then anti-submarine warfare and submarine warfare. And the British had, hadn't put any effort into protecting their merchant fleet since the Napoleonic Wars. So they had to relearn all the lessons that they had learned in the Napoleonic Wars about escorted convoys. And eventually, that's what they do to defeat the U-boat. The fact that it takes them so very long to do that is, is a fascinating topic that's been dealt with. But uh, so, so the, the naval combat in World War I is often very dreary. I mean, it consists of long periods of just boredom, either in a, in a seaplane or on a destroyer, uh, kind of sitting around until you hear an explosion or you see a submarine on the surface. And then it gets real exciting for a couple minutes, and then all the excitement dies out.
0: What's the great German movie that captured that in World War II? Is it Das Boot?
1: Das Boot, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so all this boredom interspersed with moments of terror. So, you know, about 5% terror and 95% boredom, or sleep. As we used to say in the Navy, you know, the cruise is only half as long if, if, you, if, if, you, if you sleep and eat. And so the cruise is only three months long, and the other three months you're sleeping and you're eating. Right. So, yeah, so that's kind of naval warfare. And it's not any different in World War I. Uh, the, sort of the high adventure piece of it is uh, very interspersed. Uh, uh, you know, many people don't see any combat at all. It's, they, you know, but the fact that there's no combat doesn't mean they're not performing a useful military mission. Uh, for, the, for the battles against the U-boat, you know, the whole idea here is how do we kill submarines? And initially, the British go with the classic method of let's hunt them down in the open seas. The, there's, the technology doesn't exist to hunt submarines in the open oceans. Right, there's no sonar or anything yet. No sonar. They use hydrophones. They listen. Well, the problem for listening for submarines is ships are noisy. And if you're in the shipping lanes, so you're going to hunt for submarines in the shipping lanes, Right well what's the problem in the shipping well you've got ships in the shipping's lane and so all the propeller noise is in the water and so you're hearing all this noise and trying to figure out what's a submarine i think the british only ever attack one submarine in the open ocean using this method the way to catch submarines is to bait the trap the trap is the convoy escorted by destroyers and so if the submarines got they've got to destroy merchant ships so they have to come to the convoy. So the way to kill the submarines is to say, okay, well, here's all the targets. Come get them, big boy. And then to schwack them. Well, that's a military term, meaning sink them or attack them <laughs> right. with your destroyers. And, and then your airplanes. Air power plays a very big role in the defeat of the German submarines in, 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 World, war I, in World War I.
0: So we now have had our, our great war. Um, kind of the culmination in many ways of the pre-war popular movements we have dealt with as as you said earlier we've dealt with Germany we've also dealt with you know Austria-Hungary but that's not really part of the story now these powers that won the war have to figure out where to go from here so we're entering the interwar years Wilson fails at getting the United States to sign on to the Treaty of Versailles the League of Nations He, he obviously has health problems We're bringing in a new Republican administration under Harding, as you've said. So how is the Harding foreign policy different from Wilson's?
1: That's a really good question. Um, Because, you know, at first when you look at it, you go, well, Harding essentially adopts Wilson's approach with international agreements. Uh, The thing here, though, is the United States is in control. So this is a U.S.-dominated system. Uh, it's not completely dominated by the United States, but the United States basically says, this naval treaty system that we want to implement that's gonna free up all this money for peaceful purposes and turn swords into plowshares, we're we're gonna be one of the controllers of it. Um, And so instead of sort of joining the international system as it exists after Versailles, the United States sort of creates this global maritime system where it's one of two big players, the United Kingdom and the United States, the English-speaking powers. The United States still doesn't see itself as a partner with Great Britain in all of this. Uh, It kind of maintains that, you know, uh, separate but equal, you know, to to, to use a world-worn phrase of it, although inside the British and the American navies, they both see the future of naval warfare in the Pacific. They really don't see it in Europe, in European waters because they feel Germany's completely been eliminated as a competitor and nobody can imagine having a naval war with France. Italy is in Britain's calculations so so I think one of the reasons it's different from Wilson is it's very much a system where the United States is chauvinistic and nationalist and hey this is a system that that that's ours it's 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 our idea and we don't have to share it the fascinating thing is it brings the united states into the tent the united states establishes almost a permanent mission in in geneva to monitor arms limitations discussions that occur under the league of nations ages but when they have a naval meeting the united states will attend and there'll actually be a naval conference in 1927, the Geneva Naval Arms Conference, which is really a creature of the, vers- of, of, the, of the League of Nations. And the United States will send a delegation to it. But again, the United States is sort of that, that approach of, of an associated power versus a fully participating member. In that way, it's not different than Wilson. It, it is like, yeah, we're part of the global, the global consortium of nations, except we're not. You know, so we want our cake and we want to eat it too. Um, and so that's sort of how this is different for the Harding administration. They haven't sold out to internationalism, you know, the way that they criticized Wilson to it. But for all practical purposes, they're full participants in the system. Uh, Europe's a mess. Uh, if, if not for the Dawes, the, the, the Dawes Act and, and the U.S. restructure of European debt, you know, you might even have another war in Europe in the 1920s. So the United States, it's not a bad system. I'm not criticizing this system. I think it does a lot of good for the peace of Europe, particularly in the 1920s. I mean, if you're going to judge the success of this system, you have to look at the 1920s and how successful it really was in, in, in sort of rolling back the tide of, 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 of militarism, navalism, and, and, and radical political ideology. So much so that by the time you get to 1928, you get the Kellogg-Briand Pact, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, this is all on the eve of an economic collapse, which is going to which is going to put everything back into the shaker.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's a point we'll certainly circle back to. Um, before we get there, though, I'd like to step across the Pacific for a second. So we we kind of understand how four of these five powers get to Washington. Why is Japan signing on to? A treaty that will limit its rise to being and and continuing to be a great power?
1: Well, I have a friend and he says one word money (laughs) Okay Now I think the Japanese would take issue with that because they go well, you know We're not money-grubbing, you know, uh, at least the way the Japanese see themselves with respect to You know sort of at least at that time period But it really is so that so the Japanese after World War one are one of the victorious powers they're a lot like the United States. They're sort of—they're not a full partner in the alliance, okay? And Japan is less a full partner than the United States. They—they they don't send any ground troops to Europe.
0: Yeah, they, basically don't do any fighting, right?
1: Well, they send their destroyers to the Mediterranean to help escort convoys to protect them against, you know, Baron von Trapp and the and the submarine force of the Austro-Hungarian Navy. Right, but. Uh, but other than that, no, they don't do any fighting in the European theater other than their participation in anti-submarine warfare. So, so after the war is over, they have something called the 8-8 plan. And their 8-8 plan, it sees the United States as a budget enemy. And at this point in time, Japan's navy is at war with Japan's army. The real, ar- the real enemy for the Japanese navy is not so much the U.S. Navy as it is the Army, because the Army keeps trying to take its budget share. And so the Navy comes up with this 8-8 plan. Now the 8-8 plan is not aimed at anybody other than the United States. So the United States is a budgetary enemy. And there's a guy who was a chief of staff to Admiral Togo at the Battle of Tsushima named Baron Admiral Kato Tamasoboran. And Kato, Admiral Kato, Comes up with the eight-eight plan: eight battleships and eight battle cruisers, because they see that the United States has passed this building act in 1916, the 1916 Naval Act, and this is their way to. Now, this is all they can afford to build. All right, but again, it capture. Again, we're capturing the popular imagination, right? Uh, previously, they'd had the six-six plan, which was you know six battleships and six armored cruisers.
0: So, when we're talking yeah. eight battleships, eight armored cruisers, how how does that rank with other navies?
1: That would actually make the Japanese Navy the second most powerful Navy in the Pacific. If the United States has a fleet in the Pacific,
0: and we're we're also forgetting in our history that countries like Chile had significant naval power. Right. They
1: had they had significant they had battleships. Right. They had dreadnought battleships in fact. So so uh so the, this actually vaults the Japanese into the first rank as a naval power of the Pacific, which the Japanese had that was one of their goals, right? Um, and with the British kind of pulling their Pacific Ocean squadrons back to Great Britain prior to World War I, they sort of ceded the Pacific, at least the Western Pacific, to the Japanese. Now because of the Philippines, so the Philippines and China are the two flies in the ointment here, from the United States standpoint, Japan Japan is a threat to the Philippines. And so so they're sort of thinking about this apolitically, all right? We're not concerned with the politics of the situation, we're just concerned the most capable fleet in the Pacific is the Japanese, and if we were the Japanese and we went war with the United States, we seize Guam and the Philippines to prevent the US Navy from having bases in the Western Pacific. And that's called War Plan Orange. Well, the Japanese look at us and they go, we're gonna seize the Philippines and Guam if we go to war with the American, with the American Navy. And so they sort of have the same counter War Plan Orange that, that, that we're sort of envisioning. So we're seeing each other and planning against each other Without any real political context until this war scare in 1920, what happens with Japan? Why she buys into this is because the the Japanese uh, prime minister uh, at the time, who I think is Tanaka, um, I could be wrong. It could be somebody else. And this is called Taisho democracy. That they're saying we can't afford the 88 fleet. So if you so they accept the Washington Naval Conference invitation in consultation with the Navy minister. Well, who's the Navy minister? The Navy minister is Baron Kato Tamasabro. And so he says, we have to go because we might be able to cut our expenses. And if the Americans decide to reduce their fleet and quit building, then we can reduce our fleet and quit building. And the pressure will kind of be off, us, off of us in terms of our battles with the army over the budget. And so the Navy agrees to go but they make it it a a matter of of inflexibility. They will not agree to anything less than 70% of the U.S. fleet because they figure as the United States comes across the Pacific, the fleet is going to decrease in power with every 1,000 miles it goes from Hawaii. And so they figure by the time it gets to Guam, its power will be reduced below 70%. So if the Japanese fleet is 70% the size of the American fleet, and we're talking battleships here, okay? So the Japanese battleships are 70% of the American battleships. At the start of the war, they can win a war with the United States. So they go, to the, they go to the conference saying, we want a 10-7 ratio. When they find out that the United States is willing to quit building battleships and to scrap a million tons of battleships, even though they're going to be at 60%, they go, we got to accept this deal. At the same time, the British come in and say, hey, what if we get the Americans to agree to no bases in the Pacific? In other words, they don't really have any built-up bases in Guam or the Philippines right now anyway for their fleet. Congress has been very parsi- parsimonious about building up naval infrastructure in the Pacific, which is standard for Congress back then. And, and so Baron Cato goes to the American delegation. The American admirals go, no way. The Japanese admiral goes, this is this is great, and the American delegation goes, yeah, if we get them to agree to the 60% ratio, but no new bases, the non-fortification of our bases, what they call the status quo on naval bases clause, then they'll agree to it. So this is pretty complicated. So, so basically what the Americans are agreeing is that once the fleet gets out to the western Pacific, there's nowhere it can go into dry dock to fix its propulsion casualties, to scrape barnacles off the hull, to give the crew a rest. In other words, the Americans are gonna show up and if anything bad happens to them, there's nowhere to go to repair the fleet. And the Japanese decide that's worth it. And that's why they agree to the treaty. But they agree to come to the conference because they really, they need to save money. They can't afford the naval arms race. The Americans are spending them into financial ruin and they wanna get out from under that financial burden.
0: No, that certainly makes sense. Uh, What are the talks like? Are they contentious at all? Is it just a bunch of the typical statesmen in rooms kind of agreeing with each other? Well,
1: you know, all the fireworks are really on the first day. Um, When Hughes presents his proposal, people start to cheer. By the time his speech is over, it's like 12 o'clock on New Year's Eve people are throwing confetti, they're cheering, they're yelling. Uh, one of the observers says that Hughes sinks more battleships in one day than all the admirals of history have s- has sunk in the all of history, which is true if you measure it by tonnage. Um, and so, so it's, it's, Hughes really pulls a fast one on everybody. It's contentious over things like the status quo clause. Uh, it, it's contentious kind of outside the conference, but inside the conference, basically everybody's doing damage control. How, how can we get the best possible out of, this, out of this proposal that Hughes made without looking like the bad guy who's for warmongering and naval armaments and who's an anti-peace person? And then the public, as soon as this hits the papers, because it's a public speech, the public outpouring, not just in the United States, but throughout the world is in favor of this. So the naval officer corps of Japan, France, Italy, the United States, and Great Britain, yeah, there's a lot of grumbling, you know, when they're in in the all-men's clubs where they're smoking cigars and drinking brandy. There's a lot of grumbling and complaining. But uh, but other than that, it's, it's actually very collegial, collaborative. The one thing where they really push back is when Hughes tries to abolish the submarine as a weapon of war. And uh, uh, and the British are in favor of this proposal. In fact, this is a British sort of agenda item. We're going to get submarines declared illegal. Also on the agenda is, the, is, is, is an item to declare bombers illegal. Okay, Both of those things are tabled. Uh, and they're tabled because the fleet representatives say, no, we're not, we'll put in place cruiser rules to prevent unrestricted submarine warfare. We need submarines. Because of the naval arms limitation, we need submarines as an auxiliary to serve as scouts and reconnaissance platforms for the fleet, Um, and and they win the day. Uh, uh, And again, because Hughes hadn't really thought about uh, a specific mechanism with respect to the submarines other than just abolish them, he really wasn't in a position to challenge his naval experts. And so we went, okay, we'll table this and we'll make sure we get a convention on submarine cruiser warfare rules. And, and I don't know if the convention is signed at the Washington Naval Treaty, but it's during this period of the 1920s that the, the, these rules are implemented and everybody signs and agrees. There's a, at the treaty, they actually, uh, one of the things that does come out is the Convention Against the Use of uh, Gas, Against uh, a Poison Gas in Warfare. That's there. A couple other treaties are the, the Japanese and the British have a naval treaty alliance. The United States wants the, the Anglo Japanese Naval Treaty. To not be renewed. And the way they solve that problem is they replace it with the Franco-Anglo-Japanese-American Naval Alliance of the Pacific. That's called the Four Power Pact. So now the United States, Japan, England, and France are all allies in the Pacific, reputedly. Okay. Right. Finally, there's China. I mentioned there's the Philippines and China. You know, the the snake in the garden here is China. Because Japanese policy vis-a-vis China is not changed by anything that happens at the treaty. The Japanese are still very rapacious about what they're going to do in China. The, treaty tr- the conference tries to deal with that by creating this thing called the Nine Power Treaty, which is going to do two things. It's going to respect the sovereignty of China and limit Japan's ability to exploit China. Japan had leveraged something called the 21 Demands on China during World War I, and they were forced to repudiate this. And that repudiation is formalized in the so-called Nine Power Pact, which China actually signs, which respects the integrity and the sovereignty of China, while at the same time confirming European extraterritoriality in China. And it also formally commits Japan to respect the American open door in China for American goods. So that's really an economic treaty uh, more than anything else. And so these, this, this, it's not just one treaty, it's many treaties. And they bring peace to the region for 10 years. So I, it's a pretty good bargain. Um, I'll probably stop there.
0: Well, and that's, that's where I was headed next. So we've got our treaties in hand. We, have, as you mentioned, have smoked lots of cigars in, in dimly lit rooms. Uh, how does this play out over the next two decades?
1: So things are going pretty well. Um, and then there's the Wall Street crash. Now, there are already problems with the global economy. One of the things that the, that the battleship holiday does uh, is that it, it, it's a catastrophe for the shipbuilding industry. We go, well, they can build merchant ships. Well, what happened in World War I? Submarines were sinking merchant ships. So everybody increased their orders for merchant ships so you have this huge legacy fleet of merchant ships. So there's really no new orders coming in for merchant ships because you've got all these merchant ships left over from World War I. So, so the shipbuilding industry, for, for the shipbuilding industry, Washington, is sort of the final nail in the coffin. And over the long term, this contributes to this underlying malaise in the 1920s. So you have to go into the economics of it. John Kenneth Galbraith, Galbraith's book, The Great Cash, Crash, the later editions especially, kind of goes into what happens in the United States. But you get the Great Depression. And that is sort of the beginning of the end. Um, it, allows, it allows the critics of these treaties and internationalism and the rules-based order set up at Versailles and Washington to come out and say, well, this hasn't done us any good. The other thing that happens uh, with, these, with, these, uh, with these treaties is there's no enforcement mechanism. This is an age of gentlemen shaking hands, all right? So how do you enforce adherence to these treaties? Well, they sign them, they're gonna keep their word. So there's really no mechanism to enforce compliance with any of these treaties that are signed, okay? Um, well, the fascinating thing that I've found in, in, in my research on the topic is it's amazing how many people don't cheat on the treaties that stick to the treaties. Now, there are loopholes in the treaties, and I've written about those, but, you know, one of the narratives of the interwar period is the Japanese are cheating on the treaties. Nah, they're not really, they're not cheating any more than we are, and we're not cheating that much, so they're not cheating. You know, oh, they're building up the mandates. Nope, they're not actually doing any fortification in the mandates, the Versailles mandates in the Carolines and the Marshals, so, uh, and in the Marianas, for that matter. So, so, so it's just fascinating. There's no enforcement mechanism, however, when things start to go wrong, the lack of an enforcement mechanism for this international rule ba- rules-based system based on Versailles, the Washington Treaty, and then in 1930, the London Naval Treaty, which extends the 5:5:3 ratio to all the other classes. Um, that's the short answer for that. It's actually more complicated than that. So when we get to the 19, 1930s and things start to go wrong, we start to see Japan behave in a high-handed manner in China, particularly in Manchuria, there's no enforcement. And people start to violate the rules-based order, and there's, there's nothing anybody can do except sort of kick them out of the League of Nations, right, uh, or censor them. Because nobody's actually kicked out of the League of Nations. Most of the nations that leave the League of Nations just say, "Screw you! You can't criticize me," and they just leave the League of Nations. Japan will do that in 1934.
0: It yeah, doesn't Italy do it shortly thereafter. Yeah,
1: Italy does it for Ethiopia, and then Germany will do it right. as well. Right. Um, and Germany had only been allowed to join just a couple years before. So, so the whole system starts to break down. And the 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 problem here is 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 probably the London Naval Treaty. This was a big opportunity perhaps for a much broader, wider conference like Washington had been. Instead, they said, you know what, we're just going to focus on naval affairs. And so nobody really kind of brings up all these other problems. And 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 nobody really is working on a solution to, to the economic problems of the globe. It's the, all the nations are struggling with what to do. Now, it's not so bad outside the United States yet. But by the time we get to 1931, 1932... All of those seismic aftershocks from the great crash in the American Depression finally get to the rest of the globe. And what happens is it causes fascism and militarism to, to hit a big rebound. You know, Some nations will will, will just say, hey, the way to get out of this is just to, to rearm and deficit spend. So that's what the Japanese, the Germans, and Italians will all do. Of course, by the time we get to the end of the 1930s, they're out of credit Um and so it's either go broke or go to war, right. and they and most of them decide to go to war.
0: So this is a, a kind of a case study in maybe the end of the Congress system, if we want to look at it that way, kind of a holdover from the previous century. It's certainly a case study in international cooperation relations and diplomacy. Uh, so what lessons do you think might be learned from this Washington Naval Conference?
1: Well, you know, my big lesson learned is keep trying. Don't give up on international collective security. Um, you're probably going to get more people who want collective security than people who don't want to participate. You know, you, know, you know, perhaps we live in an age where, where people are, are, are more chauvinistic and nationalistic and, and, you know, revisionist powers and all this kind of thing. But, uh, but my big lesson learned is the Washington uh, Naval Treaty was a good start. Um, and, 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 and the processes and systems and, and treaties that were there were a good start. But these systems have to be maintained, ongoing, and dialogue and conversation has to continue. And at the end of the Cold War, we let this system die. So So it was only in the middle of the Cold War, actually sort of the end of the beginning of the Cold War, in the 1960s that we got the system started again. Now, this time it wasn't battleships, it's nuclear weapons, right? But we get the ABM treaty, Uh, we get all of these agreements, the nuclear non-proliferation agreement. Uh, You know, he who does not have nuclear weapons cannot have nuclear weapons, which is why we have the ongoing crises in North Korea and Iran today. Um, And then this idea of, hey, let's start to limit these things. Maybe we can't reduce them, but we can limit them. And so you'll get SALT 1, SALT 2 then we can start to reduce them as long as we're talking. And so that whole regime, uh, that had its basis in the the Washington Treaty. This was diplomatic historians and foreign policy experts going, hey, let's try that again. And they do for nuclear weapons and it works extremely well in preventing nuclear war during the Cold War. And certainly for the first part of the Cold War period, it's very successful, but these systems require care and feeding and nurture. And if you don't do that and you begin to sort of let them decay and devolve, then you're at where 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 you could be at, you know, where people are, are abrogating treaties, they're failing to do this. And and I, I and I know, you know, if you look if you look at twenty ten or twenty fifteen or twenty twenty and you kind of go forward in time, you'll see Russia and the United States sort of shedding their participation in these agreements. Um, that it's not really a good idea to do. Um, so I, you know, my personal feeling is we sort of missed a big opportunity to celebrate Washington by 2021. Maybe having another arms limitation conference in Washington. You know, my own feeling is, you know, 2021 is probably late. All right, it's never too late. But you know, ideally, you know, if 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 I could go back into a time machine. And, and I, I would say, you know, we probably should have been doing this while we were very strong. Arms limitation works best and is, is best initiated by a very strong actor. After World War I, the United States could essentially dictate terms. It was very generous in the terms it dictated. But, uh, but arms limitation is harder to do between equals than it is between those who are unequal. And so one reason it's kind of difficult to get back on the bus and get this system going again is because of the, 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 the relativities of power are more equal. Now, that might sound odd. It might seem counterintuitive. They would think they'd be more likely to do that. But no, actually, arms limitation works better when one side is stronger than the other, okay? As long as the one side is your side, okay? You know, so from an American standpoint, if the Western liberal order is the stronger, side, then it should initiate care and feeding of the system while it's strong. That did not happen uh, in the Cold War era as effectively as it might have happened. I think we did a, I think the world order did a good job in the 1990s, but the whole thing sort of degraded. And then, uh, of course, after the attack on the World Trade Centers, the world's sort of focus got, got focused off of arms limitation and arms reductions by this whole idea of a war on terror. And that terror was what was really threatening the stability of the world system. Uh, And of course now we know nuclear weapons still threaten that stability and that's something we have to deal with.
0: That's been a fascinating discussion. Dr. Kuhn, thank you.
1: Thank you, John, it's a pleasure.
0: If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.